Hello there, it's Andrew here again, and we're running into a new episode of um, Culloden Christian Assembly Home Bible Study uh, podcasts, and that we're looking at a letter to the family, studies in First John, and this is study number two. Now, I had planned to have study number two covering chapter two. That's when I wasn't really thinking of the fact that there was 29 very involved verses in, in uh, chapter two. So, uh, what I've done is, uh, we'll, we'll kind of cover most of the chapter in a sort of general breakdown way, um, but we'll be focusing on the first 15 verses or so in this uh, study today, and we'll be picking up in our next home Bible study, we'll be picking up on the rest of chapter two. We had a really interesting study, I felt, um, rewarding study uh, of the Word of God, and the Lord gave us help as we looked into his Word together. So let's come to chapter two of, of First John. Um, just before we do so, we'll commit ourselves to the Lord. Father, we come to you. You're the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. You're the God um, who has been revealed in your Son. We thank you for the one who has revealed you so perfectly and fully. We thank you for the one who is the Word, the Word of life, the Word of God. And our Father, we, we thank you that we can now speak about him and think about the truths and that, that concern him and concern his people. We thank you for the family of God, for every brother and sister in Christ. We pray that you would give us a deeper love for each other. And we just commit ourselves to you now as we look at your word uh, together in the Lord's name. Amen. Okay, so getting us started, um, I'm out here in um, my shed come study. Um, Lindsay's busy with with. Uh, some friends inside, and I have a little time to myself, so I thought we'd get this podcast um, nailed this evening. Um, getting us started. It's really incredibly important to keep in mind John's real reason for this beautiful letter. We mentioned this last time, but a rift had occurred between true Christians and those who professed to be Christians, but had swallowed these deeply false teachings about the person of Christ. And about the nature of reality. Uh, they were termed and called the Gnostics, the, those who know. And it's interesting that that is one of the terms that John will use himself. We know, eventually he's going to say by the end of it, we know that the Son of God has come. We know that we have eternal life and so on. And, and that seems to be directly against the background of the Gnosticism that, that has come in to the, the visible church, for want of a better expression, uh, just now. But as we look at, at chapter two, we really have to keep in mind again this uh, central verse, First uh, John 2 and 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. So John is telling them something that they have to grasp there, especially the younger Christians, as we'll see eventually, especially in the next story. He's telling them that the people that went out that didn't continue they were not of us. They, they did not have the same character that we have. Because continuance is the fruit and the evidence of reality when it comes to Christian things. So it's really important we, we even test ourselves against that standpoint. It's important that we understand the truth of eternal security, that those who are in Christ are safe in Christ forever. But it's also important that we understand that if we deny the fundamentals of the faith, it just proves that we are not true believers in the Lord Jesus. Now, we'll come to unpack that a little bit more as we go through this chapter. 
So we're keeping this this background of the true and the false um, that, that John is going to write against. He's going to clear up. Uh, he writes to clarify and shine a light upon the difference between a true child of God and a child, as he'll say in chapter three, of the wicked one. He also writes to assure those who are true that they have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's quotation from the ESV. So keeping these things in mind, let's move into chapter two. The first two verses really link back into the end of chapter one. So um, we'll come back and see that as we look at the verses um, uh, and as we go through. But first of all, we'll we'll read the text of First John chapter two. Uh, right down to about verse number 20 for today, although we'll not cover all of that. <clears throat> My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing no new commandment to you. But an old commandment that you had from the beginning, the old commandment is a word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true life is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We'll read a little bit into the next section. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have knowledge. Notice that, have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has a Father. Whoever confesses the Son has a Father. 
also. Now we'll pause in our reading there. Um, we'll not get right down there, but it's important we understand the context of the whole of the chapter. When it comes to chapter two, um, the, the title I've given to this chapter is Are We Real? Are They Real? Evidences of Salvation. The first two verses we're going to see really link back into chapter one. The verse, the chapter divisions aren't inspired in scripture. Um, the text is inspired, but the divisions are not inspired. They were placed in by later in later records. Um, some of the verse divisions, some of the chapter divisions clearly don't necessarily follow the flow of thought. And so these first two verses, you could really attach them into the end of chapter uh, one. We'll think about that in a minute. But as we go down and as we think about the rest of chapter two, uh, we're going to see evidences of true life from verse three to verse 29. How do we know that we are different than those people that have gone out from us? The young believer might be saying. How, how do I know that they were my friends? They, they said that they were Christians. They, they, they proclaimed um, to know Christ. So how, how am I different than they? This schism has occurred in the body, um, not in the body itself, but but in the, the body of believers in a, in a corporate sense. Among the local churches, there'd been those who had left them and gone out, probably family members and all sorts and they'd been taken over by this false teaching that had come from the devil about the Lord Jesus Christ and more, and about the whole nature of reality. We'll talk about that in a wee while. But how can John settle them? How can John calm them down and help them to see things from God's perspective? Well, how he does it is he, he presents in this chapter, he turns on the light, as it were, and he presents evidences of true life and so we're going to see from verse three to six he he deals with what we might call moral evidence the moral evidence of life and its obedience by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments we can know something we can know that we really know him these these um, false teachers are saying that they have special knowledge about things we can have special knowledge about something we know that we've really come to know him if there's a change in character of our life in the character of our life and we're we're following after and we're trying to keep his commandments now john's not speaking about absolutes here he's speaking about characteristics you'll notice in verse one to two as we're going to come back to in a minute he's saying that christians can sin He's not saying that this obedience will never be unwavering or will ever be unwavering. He's not, he's not saying that, that there can't be a stumble along the pathway. He's saying that the general traje trajectory of the life of a believer is to obey the commandments of Christ. We'll come back to that section. So moral evidence, that's the first uh, stone, as it were, that he places in the building of evidence, moral evidence. If you're Truly the Lord's, you'll be wanting to follow his command. You'll be following his commandments as a as a, a general rule in your life. Secondly, um, we then have social evidence, if you like. Come down to verse number seven, and I've just grouped together seven to 17, and we've been unhappy with that division, but it, there's other ways we could have divided the passage, but for the sake of what we want to draw out of it, it'll help. We'll get the rest, hopefully, as we go through. 
Now he's going to present social evidence of true life. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you and so on. He says, but an old commandments, which you've had from the beginning. Look down at verse number nine. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause of stumbling at him. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. You see what he's doing here? Uh, this, the evidence that the evidence that he's presenting now is not the moral evidence of, of following the commands of Christ, but the social evidence of love. I can't say that I'm truly the Lord's if I have no love for my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the social evidence of divine love. They'll go on to speak about growth in the family and, and overcoming other evidences that come in and what, what I've termed the social section. We'll think about that as we go through. And eventually, as we come down, uh, we'll think next week mainly about doctrinal evidence that you belong to the family. That's continuance in truth. You see, what has happened here is that they have imbibed teaching about the Lord Jesus, which was ultimately false, that under that really undermined the incarnation of Christ, that he had truly come in flesh. And what they were saying was that the Christ spirit, something like this, the Christ spirit had descended upon Jesus at his baptism and left him before the cross. Now we'll come to think about that um, in later times, but that's, I'm, I'm summarizing it. We don't want to spend too much time in Gnosticism, but because of their understanding of uh, the material universe and it being evil, material being evil in and of itself. They, they had to have a, a funny idea about creation because after all, if if God is good and, and this is an evil world and, and the actual physical stuff of the universe is somehow inherently evil, um, then how did God get to be, to be making this world? And they had a, a series of emanations and iterations from deity that somehow at the... the the far end of it, there was a creator, a divine, semi-divine being that created the universe. So it kind of, in their minds anyway, made a distinction between the God, the absolute goodness of God, and the universe that, as far as they were concerned, was totally bad. The material, I mean, of the universe that was totally bad. So that they had to, then they had another problem because the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had come into this world. And Christians had taught and believed that God had become enfleshed in the person of the Lord Jesus. He had, he had come into this world. He'd become incarnate. That's what I mean by enfleshed. Because that's what it means, incarnate. He had, he had took to himself true humanity. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we're going to find out when we get onto that section more detail, the false ideas that they had to have about the person of Christ that they were peddling, and it had had a tremendous impact on the early church before the year 100 AD. Now you think of that, we're only within 50, 60 years of the death of Christ, and already there's a massive invasion of false teaching coming into the churches. And John is writing to the true children of God, and he is going to point out that if you don't abide in the doctrine of Christ, you don't have the Father, you don't have the Son. 
So there's doctrinal evidence for new life, and it is continuance in the truth. Okay, so so the three main areas of evidence that that you know that someone is is truly a believer. They they listen to the word of God. They want to obey the the word of the Lord. Okay. Secondly, they have a love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And thirdly, they believe the apostolic teaching about the person of Christ. Now, you think of that. Those three evidences were lacking with regard to these that had gone out from them. And so it's helpful for us to, to see that. Uh, and it helped them, too, to understand that they can't just take someone's word, someone's profession, what they say outwardly, as what they say in face value. They were, not, they were to be as wise as serpents, as well as being as harmless as doves. And we should be as well today. Someone might call themselves a Christian. We are not to be gullible. We're not to be taken in. These, these, the, the younger ones, especially among these believers, were in danger of being taken in by these false uh, narratives, this false narrative and these false beliefs. So coming um, again to the text, let's look first of all at verse 1 and 2, which really links us back into chapter 1. You'll remember at the end of chapter 1, I mentioned last time that the message had come from, from him, from the Lord, and was proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And when we saw that John was writing in, in the first chapter to the professing family of God, those who had made profession, but he wants to bring them on board if they're not true. He, he, he is speaking very generally and broadly in chapter one. And so he'll, he'll call for them to, um, to come into fellowship with the apostles, you know, and, and, and his, their fellowship was with the father and his son, Jesus. And he wants his joy to be complete by, by there to be a reunifying of, of those who have made professions but aren't living in accordance with it. Um, so, so in chapter one, he's speaking very broadly, I take it, to the professing family of God. But you notice how he starts chapter two. He says, my little children. Now, he's going to deal with sins in the family because the last point he's made in, in chapter one is if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, he doesn't want the, the Christians to think that sin is a light thing, that, well, they can acknowledge their sin because every one of us acknowledges sin is a reality and, and at times a reality in our lives. He doesn't want them to think about it lightly. So he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But you notice this little expression my little children it's it's a technical term it's used throughout the first letter uh, of john it's otherwise used in john's gospel on one occasion it's used in the upper room in john chapter uh, 13 what has happened in john's gospel there's a parallel to what we have here in the upper room there's a professing group of disciples there that includes Judas. The Lord addresses them initially. Then Judas goes out from them, separates from them, and it's night. And then the Lord speaks to them again. And it's at that point that he uses the term little children. Exactly the same term as here. So what has happened is there's been a separation. Someone has gone out from them. 
He's gone out into the night, the apostate Judas, and what is left is the true children of God, is the true disciples. And we have a very similar pa parallel pattern here. The first chapter, he's speaking generally. He's spoken generally to those. He's appealed to them. And now he is speaking directly to the true family of God, I take it. My little children, my little children, he's going to say, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And so it's important we see that because he's going to go on and say, he who says or whoever says, he's not going to say, if we say, he said that in chapter one, when he was talking about the professing family, we're all involved in the professing family of God. But he says, he who says, in other words, I'm speaking to you children that are real, the person that comes along and claims this, you don't need to believe them unless they've got evidence. Okay. So anyway, that's, that's just by way of background. Let's come to the text in more detail. Dealing with sins in the family of God. So, Sin is to be an exception for the child in the family. But sins have an answer in Christ's advocacy and propitiation. But if anyone does sin, he says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, this word advocate, we never really discussed it much, but this word advocate has the thought of a legal representation. The one who is called alongside is the paraclete. It's the same word, actually, that's used in the upper room of the Holy Spirit, he is our comforter. He is the one who comes alongside us in our need, in our circumstance in this world. He is now within the believers and he is our encourager, our fortifier, the one who brings us help um, and comes alongside us in our need. But we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, now we've got another advocate, not just the one, the paraclete who comes alongside us, but a paracletos in the presence of God. Now, this is more the, it seems, the legal setting where the, the, the paraclete was the representative, the, the legal representative, the advocate. We use that word, actually, law still. The one who speaks on behalf of another in the interests of another. And so what he's saying is here, if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks on our behalf with the Father. Now, he's not doing it. It doesn't say Jesus Christ, the merciful. No, it says Jesus Christ, the righteous. So he's going to be absolutely above board here. There's nothing underhand about this advocate that we have. But why can he be Jesus Christ, the righteous? Why can he represent us in this way before the Father, if we have genuinely sinned? Well, because he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the righteous satisfaction with regard to our sins. And then he says, and not for ours only. He's not only thinking here of the body of Christ. He's not only thinking of the family of God, I should say. He, he, he broadens it out. He says, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You say, what can he mean there? Not all the world is saved. No, of course not all the world is saved. But what he's saying is that there's provision in the death of Christ. There's sufficiency in the death of Christ, not only to meet our needs, but to meet the needs of the whole world. It's not wonderful to stop and contemplate. We can never sin so badly or go so far that there's not sufficiency in the death of Christ for us, in his propitiation, he represents, it doesn't say when we confess we have an advocate with the Father, it says when we sin, 
we have an advocate with the Father. Confession is a normal part of the Christian life. We find that out in chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God and listen to our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you notice this advocacy is with the Father. It's not with God. You see, our sins and God, that subject has all been dealt with. We're born ones in the family now. If we can illustrate it, I try to illustrate it by using Isaac as an example. Isaac might do something dreadful. He's still, he's still my son. He's still in the family. Now I might need to discipline him. But there's a fatherly forgiveness that he will want to receive. He might come and confess something to me because he wants the warmth of the appreciation of the relationship again. And so that's that's the nature of, of the forgiveness in the family that John is speaking about um, in chapter one. But here we have this idea of the fact that we are not removed from God's presence. Why? Because there are representatives is there before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The one who has dealt with our sins entirely on the cross, who has made a satisfaction for our sins. That's the thought and propitiation, righteous satisfaction. Who has met the claims of a sin-hating God. And he's done it. You see, it's this God word. This, this propitiation is sufficient, not just for our sins, not for ours only, but it can avail for the whole world. There's provision in it. There's potential in it to reach out to every corner of the globe and a thousand other worlds beside if necessary, because it's an infinite sacrifice that has been done for us on the cross. So my little children, understand this. God is light. We, that should be preventative to sin in our lives. But even though the Christian confesses sin, sin must never be a complacent thing. But it's not a hopeless thing either. Because Jesus Christ, the righteous, the person of Christ. And he stands on the foundation of his work, the propitiation for our sins. And because of that, we know that we are always secure in the presence of God. Now, we can't really dwell on that longer. It's a lovely subject. But that is how he finishes that first section. Now, the question might be asked. Okay, John, accept that there's this division between these people that have gone out from us and, and us. There are those, and they, they still claim to be Christians, John. They, they, they still claim to, to know God. And I know you've said these things about them not living in light and so on, but I'm still struggling with it, John. So he comes to verse three to six and, and so on. He's going to give evidences. He's going to shine the light through the family. If you keep that in mind, all through chapter two, the God's light is shining down the passage. And this is how we know that we have come to know him. It's not through some esoteric experience. It's not through just, oh yes, well, I'm one of the knowing ones. I'm a, a Gnostic. Yes, I know I've got a special relationship with God. It's through a deep inner sensation that I have. Not at all. How do we know we've come to know him? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, 
but does not keep his commandment, is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now, John is absolutely black and white in these. He always goes to the poles. He is he is using the, the extremes, this, this antithetical way of speaking, this opposite way of speaking, to show to us the difference between light and darkness. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Now, we thought a little bit about the difference between his commandments, those individual commandments that he makes, the Lord makes, and his word. I, I take it that his word is a fuller thought. Um, it's, it's also, I think, uh, pulsating with love as well. So like we, the Lord might say some things and, and he gives very direct commandments to his people. And we know that, like, for instance, he, he commands us to meet, to remember him, for example. Now, it would be one thing to keep his commandment and want to do it maybe out of a sense of duty or even drudgery, whatever. But to keep his word, well, that's getting into the whole character of who Christ is and it's now being expressed in our life. And, and, and this idea of word is a revelation, of course, at Logos. And if we can keep his word, that's a deeper thought. In him, truly, the love of God is perfected. It's reached, either it means it's reached its goal. God's love for us has reached its goal. This is what God wants for us. Or it can mean our love for God. He thought about this. That can mean our love for God. It's been matured and perfected like a fine wine. It's reached its potential. Or perhaps both thoughts are here as we were discussing. And it's the thought of the depth of relationship that now exists between the one who not only keeps his commandment, but keeps his word. The, the love of God, divine love has reached its object in all ways in that life because we love because he first loved us. We know that. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as he walks. So you can see what he's doing here. This is moral evidence and it's obedience to the, the, the instructions and to the commandments of Christ. Let's come down to social evidence. Social evidence. Beloved. You notice he starts this one with that word, beloved. He's going to speak about love. He begins with this unusual statement. I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And you're saying, hold on a minute, Andrew. What is this new commandment? That's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment, but it's also a new commandment. What's this all about? Of course, if you were reading the, the John's Upper Room Ministry in parallel, which really would be a helpful thing to do, you will find out from chapter 3 to chapter 17, that there's so many parallels and so many connections between the two uh, groups of teaching. Um, if we go back to chapter three, uh, chapter 13 and verse 33, this is what we read. Little children, remember that coming in? Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you'll seek me just as I say to the Jews. So now I say to you, where I'm going, you can't come. 
And then he says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I loved you, that you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, by this, you'll, you'll have this evidence that you're truly mine. Love for one another. You notice that? So then John writes here, beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an open commandment which you had from the beginning. What's he talking about? Well, you see, this new false teaching has come into the church. And he's calling them back to something they knew right at the beginning of their experience of Christianity. A commandment that came to them from Christ. So it's, it's, it's not a new commandment. It's not something that's just happened in AD 90. It's something that has happened already. The old commandment is a word that you've heard. And you can even stretch it further back because some people say, well, what is that not just you love your neighbors yourself? Is that not, in a sense, in embryo form, you go way back into the Old Testament, go into the heart of God, and there's that sense in which you should love. There's a horizontal love that should exist between me and my fellow neighbor. But whatever it is, it's very definitely brought home to us by the Lord Jesus in the upper room when he says, people will know that you're my disciples indeed if you have loved one for another, just as I have loved you. Now that's unusual, isn't it? Isn't that unusual just the way he says that? Just as I have loved you. So this is an old commandment. It's, it's something that's firmly embedded in the very truth of of God and in the, the character of God stretching back into eternity in a way. Love for my fellow man, particularly love for my brother and sister in Christ. It's an old commandment. It's the word that you've heard. In other words, you, you already know this. This is really the heart of the whole. It's not just commandments now. If if you get my your love for Christ and your love for brothers and sisters in Christ in the right place, well, a lot of these other commandments just become second nature to you. At the same time, it's a new commandment. How is it new as well as old? Well, it's old in fact, but it's new in freshness. You see, when the Lord Jesus came into this world, he brought with him enfleshed, interestingly, of course, with the background, an exhibition of love that this world had never seen before. You'll remember when he went to the cross, it say, the Lord says that the world may know that I love the Father. It tells us to start at chapter 13. Having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them to the end. And now he says to them, now listen, I've loved you, I've loved the Father. And in, in that context of those two loves, I'm saying to you something remarkable here. I'm saying, you love your brothers and sisters in Christ in that way. And this is new. It's been expressed and exhibited in such a fresh and vibrant way. It was true in him, it says here in verse 8, and in you. And he has seen in them the evidence of that love going on. Because the darkness, it's passing away and the truth, true light is already shining. You see the darkness when the Lord Jesus came into this world, the darkness had hit its zenith. It was never going to get any darker than that before he came. Then the true light stepped into this world, John chapter 1. 
And he has cast his light, it tells us in chapter one, on every man. And, and the, the light is growing and it's now found a place in the heart of every true believer. And, and it's growing and growing and growing. And this idea, it goes through John, the darkness is actually passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. There's no cause of stumbling in him. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Beloved, he says, there's a great evidence that you actually have life and it's seen in your love for your brother or sister in Christ. Social evidence. Now he's going to show the development in the family. I, I'm writing to you little children. That's the first thing. Little children, this term, this technique, Technia term, um, the born ones is the thought that you're born. It's very like the 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 the, the Scots expression bairns. I'm writing to you, little little bairns or bairns, because your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. He's saying, like, listen, at the the start of the passage, he said, um, my little children, I'm writing these things that you you sin not. When he says now, verse number 12, by the way, little children, you true believers, your sins are forgiven and it's for him, for his name's sake. The one who came into this world and showed divine love as no one else ever could. It's because of him that your sins are forgiven. Just you rest in that, little children. Just you remember that. Just hold on to that. As you hold it, as you've, trusted Christ and he's holding on to you you hold on to this my sins are forgiven for his name's sake not because you deserve it no for his name's sake and then he says I'm writing to you fathers because you've known him from the beginning I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one I, I write to you and he uses a different term children or young children because you know you know the father and he's going to cycle through these three again, I take it. I write to you fathers because you know him, who, him who's from the beginning. I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides on you and you have overcome the evil woman. And then leap down to verse 18, children. So what he seems to be doing in this development in the family, he's telling us something else about evidences of true life. True life has growth. I was doing biology with the children the other day. And it was talking about, you know, biological life. And one of the signs of biological life is growth. It's growth. And so um, as, as we're dealing with the family, you can expect there's different maturity levels in the family. There's fathers. He just says the same things twice to them. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And you look down in verse 14. I write to you, fathers, because you know who, him who is from the beginning. I have nothing to add, fathers. In a sense, you're there. Those deep roots of, of just knowing God and appreciating the one who's unchanging, who's been unchanging from the beginning of your experience, who's unchanging eternally. You know him who is from the beginning. I don't need to add anything to you. You know, you're not shaken. Like those ancient, I love those ancient oak trees and, you know, they're hundreds of years old and and 
storms come and storms go, but the deep roots of those trees mean that they're not going to be shaken by the storm as it passes. And so he says to you, fathers, you know, I'm acknowledging you. You know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you. I'm acknowledging that you've got that. Now, it's not that they didn't need to grow in their spiritual life, but they had such maturity. Now, you see a brother or sister in Christ who's been enjoying the Lord for 40 years. You know, a little, little issue comes up. A big issue comes up. doesn't matter what size the issue comes up in a way. If they've been planting themselves on the rock and enjoying the Lord for 40 years, there's not much is going to shift them. So he says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And he says, I write unto you, young Young man, you have overcome the evil one. Now, this is the word for the evil one is the, the idea of a pernicious, malignant evil. There's there's the idea of bad, um, another word, kakos, that's used um, for for evil in, in the New Testament. But this is, is a, the paneros word, um, is the thought of uh, an evil that is malignant, not only you know, the, the bad person would stew in his own juice. The evil person will want to take everybody with him to hell. That's the difference. Okay. So the evil one, you have overcome the evil one. Now we had a discussion about this idea of them having overcome the evil one. I take it actually that he's referring to this onslaught of doctrinal uh, of a doctrinal nature that's happened. And the young man, it tells us at the end of verse number 14, you're strong, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. They have stepped forward in their spiritual life. They're no longer babes or children. No, they have the word within them, and they've stood up against this false teaching, and they have stood for God in the middle of it. And they have overcome the evil one. I take it quite directly with regard to this doctrinal evil. Now, we're not all at that stage, or are we all at the stage of the fathers? But even when it comes to the stage of the young men, there's things that they need to learn still. And so it's at this point, before he touches on the children again, he is going to mention the world. You see, you might win one battle and lose another. David won many battles, and yet he lost the battle with regard to Bathsheba, as we know. So it's in that context of having flushed from victory, as it were, that Abraham came back um, after the, the defeating the kings. And he's in a way, and, and, and out coming to meet him is the king of Sodom. We're in Genesis here, Genesis 14. And the king of Sodom is coming and he's saying, you keep everything. You take all the goods of Sodom. You don't, we don't need it back. We would just like to get our hooks into you, Abraham. And, and the king of Sodom, in that sense, represents the world. But then along comes Melchizedek before, before, um, before the king of Sodom can get there. The king of Salem is there. And of course, Melchizedek represents Christ. He is, he is the great high priest in, in the Old Testament sense of the word. He's a high priest, priest of the most high God. And he comes in and he strengthens just at this point. And he says, here, here, you have 
and he gives bread and wine and Abraham blesses and and God's name is revealed to him in a, a deeper way, the most high God and so on. And then Abraham is strengthened to face Sodom and all that it represents. So it just seems at this point here they are flushed from victory and, and John says, now listen, there's something you've got to understand. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He says, you, you've won one battle. Remember, there's another. Remember, there's another. Your affections are being battled for all the time. Your love. Are you going to love the Father? Or are you going to love the world? And then he says, by the way, those who really do love the world, the person who give themselves over to it in that self-sacrificial way, they don't have the love of the Father. I take it that's an absolute statement. Again, John likes those statements. Then he says, by the way, the world passes away. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now we're going to leave our Bible study here. We're going to pick it up again next week. We haven't looked at that in a terrible lot of detail. On the handout for this week, I have mentioned some of the things we can learn for next week as we look at the doctrinal section. But I trust it's been a blessing to you and that you will consider when someone makes a claim of being a Christian and perhaps they, there's a challenge to that in some way. What about ourselves when we're challenging ourselves? Do, do I exhibit the evidences of true life? Uh, am I trying with all my stumbling? Am I trying to follow the Lord and live by his word? Am I, am I trying to show love for my brother and sister in Christ? That's not necessarily an emotional thing. That's that's a that's my desire to really follow him. And so I, I'm going to be self-sacrificial to them. Uh, or else am I marked by a doctrinal um failure as as is here where i don't know who christ really is we have that in the mormon church for instance or the jw's where they they have a different christ that they're presenting to us and and they would want to tell us that they're christians and so on but but the the their christology to use that is wrong and it's wrong at the most foundational of levels so my brother and sister in christ just keep in mind that there are there are moral evidence of salvation there are social evidences of salvation and there are doctrinal evidences of salvation may lord bless this his word to you and and our studies in the lord's name